Before we start our review of last week, let me pray real quick. Father, we, as always, we want to profess our love for you um, and our confidence in you, Holy Spirit, to work in this time, in this place. Uh, Jesus, we, we sing songs of praise and we wish so much that our hearts um, felt with greater depth the truths that our mouths are speaking when we sing. But we realize that you make us willing in the day of your power and that uh, you're pleased because of the blood that was shed at Calvary and um, the faith that has been uh, poured out into us and exercised by us. You're pleased with our worship. And so we thank you for that. We glorify you in that. And right now, as we turn our attention to worshiping through your word, we pray that you would work in us uh, that which is most pleasing to you. And we pray this not only for ourselves, but for your people all over this earth where they are gathered together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we were together, we looked at verses 13 through, I call it 19a of chapter 1. We've moved on um, into this kind of the second topic in this letter. So our emphasis was no longer on trials, but we turned our attention toward the subject of temptation. Um, We saw last week that there is a sort of system to temptation, which I called, and I, I don't know if this is a good name for it or not, but I call it the temptation cycle. Um, James outlines five steps, which usually lead to, and actually the fifth one is, us sinning. Steps that lead up to and then us sinning. The first one that we looked at was attraction. We saw in the case of Eve, uh, Genesis 3, Achan, and Joshua 7, David in 2 Samuel 11. With each of these, their eventual fall into sin began with their attention being drawn to something that they were forbidden to have, something that they were not supposed to have. Um, And in each case, the object of their attention was something delightful. It was something attractive to them. So I said the first step toward us uh, sinning is attraction. Second is deception. And basically... I don't mean that the devil has to come up and whisper things in your ear that aren't true. All you have to have to be deceived, listen, this is so important. All you have to have to be deceived is you have to have spent some time and energy looking at something only in terms of how your senses perceive it. That's all it takes for you to be deceived. Because what you do then is you discount or you take out of the picture that you're looking at everything that God has said about it. So sex outside of marriage feels a lot like sex inside of marriage. It looks a lot like sex inside of marriage. It accomplishes biologically the same thing as sex inside of marriage. But if the only way you evaluate that interaction is with your senses, you're already deceived about it. God has said... That, that sex belongs in the context of covenant relationship. 
Simplest way to define deception in the context of temptation is to say that when you start thinking about anything, excluding what God has said about it, you are being deceived. This leads to preoccupations. We've got attraction, deception, and then third is preoccupation. So I pointed out that in Eve's case, she hadn't given a lot of consideration to the fruit that God had forbidden. She was content up until the point where her attention was drawn to it. She was content to obey and enjoy all the other fruit in the garden. But the moment that the serpent draws her focus to the fruit and she moves closer to the fruit, what happens is the fruit, the thing, the object, the person, whatever it is that's forbidden you gets literally bigger in your sight. Emotionally, intellectually, we become preoccupied with things the longer we look at them with deceived eyes. Preoccupation is the natural outcome of being deceived because now all we can think about is the thing that we know we're not supposed to have and yet so desperately want. So Eve imagines herself becoming wise, imagines herself enjoying with her tongue the fruit and then the fullness that comes from consuming it, the satisfaction of swallowing it. Achan imagines himself wearing the cloak of Shinar and having the comfort of the wealth that comes from the silver coins and the gold bar that he found among the spoils of war. And then David, for propriety's sake, I'm just going to abandon ship. This all leads to conception, attraction, deception, preoccupation, Conception. Because we are preoccupied by the tempting object, we begin to take what is given to us by God as a characteristic that's reflective of him. We take our creativeness and we apply it towards getting the thing that we're not supposed to have that isn't good for us. We conceive of ways to go about enjoying whatever we are forbidden. The way James puts this in verse 15 is desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. This is when the deed is done. I said last week, I don't think, I can't know for sure. In my own experience, I don't think I've ever gotten to the point of preoccupation and bailed out. I think every time I've gotten to the point of preoccupation, I'm pretty much done for. I'm going to sin. Once you've conceived, it gives birth. Now you have sinned. And this leads to the fifth thing, which is subjection. The sin is not yours. You are the sins. You become enslaved to it, controlled by it. And generally, this means we progress from that sin into a multitude of other, sometimes greater, from a human perspective, sins. Adam blames God. It was the woman you gave me. Achan sits quietly while the lots are cast over and over and over again until it's finally revealed that he's the one that stole the spoils of war and he's the one responsible for Israel suffering defeat. He could have spoken up at any time. David goes from lust to coveting his neighbor's wife to full-on adultery, right to murder. Subjection. From here, we looked at the means of resisting temptation. I didn't say this, but I want to say it now. The means that we 
<clears throat> that we covered for resisting temptation, I, I think are distinct from the means of grace in general. If you're f- familiar with that term, great. If you're not familiar with the means of grace, I, I think the common means of grace are scripture, fellowship, and prayer. If you are in the word of God, if you are in fellowship with God's people, if you are spending time in prayer, these are means by which grace is worked out in your heart and will help you avoid the, the more grievous sins, right? Or help you from falling into patterns of besetting sin. So the means that we brought up last week, I'm, I'm saying distinct from those three. Here's what we've got. Number one, know the cycle. If you know the cycle of temptation, you might actually identify when you're in it and then be able to pull the chute and get out. So that's first. Second, know the goodness of God. James says every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom or with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. What he's saying is if you understand that the heart of God towards you is one of love, of profound and unchanging affection and delight, you will be so much less given to temptation. You want to please the one who loves you unconditionally. You don't want to just take that love for granted. Or worse, use it as an opportunity to satisfy your flesh. To sin, knowing that you'll be forgiven, is not unpardonable. But man, it leads to some gruesome emotions, doesn't it? Third, we said know the significance of a new birth. Um, There are a multitude of ways we could say this. The significance of the new birth... You are a new creature if you are in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. That means you have input into your heart by God a whole new set of desires and affections and preferences. Now, they have to be like like weak muscles. They have to be worked out. You have to exercise those desires and affections and preferences in order for them to get bigger and have a more controlling impact on your behavior. But that's the only way you're going to rid yourself of the poisonous, subcutaneous fat of the remnants of sin. You have in your heart all the time the seeds of every sin. It was uh, Robert Murray McShane who said in his diaries, I find this to be true in my heart exists the seeds of every kind of sin. And when I first read that, I was really resistant to it because I don't know about you, but there are a few sins out there that I kind of cannot imagine myself engaging in. But he's saying the seeds are there. It maybe hasn't germinated and bloomed. But the potential is there. The only way to expel from inside you, in your soul, the remnants of sin is to be captivated by something else. What the new birth does is it gives you a heart of flesh in place of what was a heart of stone. So you have to know the significance of that. A new heart, new desires, freed from slavery to sin. Think about this. The new birth takes you from subjection, which is the final outcome to the temptation cycle, takes you from subjection into freedom again. He led captivity captive. And he set those in bondage free from sin. If you are born again, you don't have to eat the fruit. You don't have to take the spoil. You don't 
have to commit adultery. Now you may, and oh, the heartache that flows from it, the unsettling that we do to our assurance of faith when we sin, already knowing Christ. So know the cycle. Know the goodness of God. Know the significance of a new birth. Amen? Amen. So James now turns to a broader treatment of the subject of just Christian attitude. So he says in 19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Um, if you weren't here last week, I, I did say last week, I think the beginning of 19 belongs actually at the end of 18. It's the antecedent to everything that came before. You know this or know this. So I've started kind of halfway through 19, let every person, because I think that's, that's where James' train of thought picks up. Uh, for those of you that don't know, the chapter and verse divisions were not put in by the original authors of the scriptures. Those were added in the 1500s with the advent of a printing press and the need to divide these things up, okay? So it's not sacrilegious for me to say. I think there's a minor textual error here. I work for a man... Oops, I wasn't supposed to say that. I wanted to be more vague. Oh, well, he'll never hear this. I work with a man who has the most infuriating knack for turning every conversation topic to a discussion of his observations and accomplishments. Um, what happens when you've got somebody like this in your orbit is every lively discussion that you're engaged in gets utterly smushed by this person and their selfish preoccupation, okay? You know the type? Doesn't matter what you're talking about. This person can walk up and make the entire thing about them, and then the outcome is usually the end of the conversation because it just it's like pouring cold water on a, on a simmering fire. The, the, the reality is people are not interested in hearing some vaguely related to the topic observation or story about you. And I bring this up because I find it is a remarkable example of the opposite of everything in verse 19. My colleague is neither quick to hear nor slow to speak. And I am, as a result, rarely slow to anger. Most of us would agree uh, we live in a self-obsessed culture, and this is not the part where the, the uh, evidently old pastor begins to bemoan how much better things were 30 years ago. So please stay with me if you're a millennial or a Gen Z. In the last 20 years, we've seen the emergence of technologies that allow individuals to, pro to project their opinions across the globe with just the touch of a few buttons. In fact, you don't even have to touch buttons anymore. You can just tap on a screen, right? Now that's pretty remarkable. And I'm not sure we know psychologically, certainly not sociologically, all of the implications of having the ability to put every wandering thought that passes through your brain out there for everyone else to read. We don't know. 
I'm going to guess and say there are probably some negative effects from being able to do that. Beginning with your dismay when you find that more people aren't interested, right? <laughs> Unless you are in the fashion industry. Let's, let's go back a few years. We'll go back to 1999. Okay? I know that's an eternity for a lot of you, but for most of us, that was a couple months ago. <laughs> 1999, you are not a supermodel in the fashion industry. Okay? You have probably in your possession a camera, maybe two. How many pictures of yourself do you own in 1999? Unless it was taken by a photographer with your family member, it's pretty rare to just have a drawer full of pictures of yourself. Yep. However, now most people probably have dozens, if not hundreds or thousands. And before you're come, uh, overcome with the urge to make some comment about how you've never taken a selfie in your life, <laughs> and you're the exception, let me point out that you probably have sent unsolicited pictures of projects you're working on, a car you bought, or the carcass of an animal that you killed. <laughs> it might not be you, but it's indicative of you. And besides all that, why are you so eager to broadcast the lack of a selfie in your camera roll? <laughs> we live in a self-obsessed culture. Our instinct is to let other people know, like one way or the other, We'll do it with the humble brag or we'll do it with the not so humble brag. James has covered trials and temptations. I think very carefully guiding us toward understanding how these things work in the life of a believer. And now he's turning his attention to addressing more generally the characteristics of a Christian. Okay, There are five in these verses. I know you all love how carefully outlined all my messages are, right? Somebody tell me you love that. We love that. Thank you. We live in a self-obsessed, you see it? I'm just trying to demonstrate it. Five in these verses. Quick to hear, that's one. Slow to speak, slow to anger, putting away filth and wickedness, and then fifth, receiving the word. Look, this is so cool. This is one of the greatest tools I ever cultivated as a teacher, for which many people have long admired me. <laughs> If you invert lists like this in the scripture, it paints an incredibly accurate picture of our existence. Slow to listen, quick, desperate even to speak, quick to anger, embracing filth and wickedness, ignoring, denying, or even reviling the word of God. See, you just turn them around. All of a sudden, you have described the United States of America in 2022. Yeah. Slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to anger, embracing filth and wickedness, ignoring, denying, or even reviling the word of God. 19 and 20 says, let every person be the opposite, right? With this little addition in 20 of the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When I was... First through fifth grade, I'm pretty sure. There might be an exception in there somewhere, but I think all five of those years, at least, for some reason, the Department of Education found it absolutely paramount 
that school children be taught how to dance. I don't, like, I've wondered before, when I get to the point where I've got children, where, where are my children and grandchildren, what would be the thing that I would talk about that they would hear and think, how old is he? Like I used to when my dad would talk about being spanked in school. I'd be like, are you from the 1800s? Right? I think this is the thing. Nearly every year in grade school, there was this dreaded section of, it was either music or PE or some combination of the two where we would be subjected to an agonizingly boring lecture about music and dance, following, followed by the following two horrifying abuses. Number one, the waltz. Number two, the square dance. Yeah. Being required to touch a girl when you're in first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, is the most horrifying thing imaginable, partially because it seemed like the girls found the entire exercise delightful. <laughs> Being required to take her left hand in your right hand and place your left hand on her shoulder while she did the inverts. And keep those hands there for more than a nanosecond. Horrifying. But I still remember the way the teacher described the steps. Quick, quick, slow. Quick, quick, slow. And this description made no sense to me because when I hear a waltz, the emphasis in my mind is always on beat one. One, two, three. One, two, three. Why is it quick, quick, slow? Quick, quick, slow. That's it, so dumb. I always heard it. I always heard it. Quick, slow, slow. Quick, slow, slow. Amen. So when I came upon James 1.19 and realized the pattern that he suggests for the Christian life matches my expectation, I was overjoyed to find that music and PE teachers from 1986 to 1992, at least, were all wrong. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick, slow, slow, quick, slow, slow. Now, before I torment the dancers in the room any longer, I do understand that the words of the waltz are actually a reference to the physical movements and not the rhythm itself. But I did not understand this in grade school because I was fixated on the feel of the beat. I've always been more of a musician than a dancer. Okay. That was a sick burn right there. <laughs> How do we hear, speak, and feel? as Christians. Hear, speak, and feel. What James is saying is quick, slow, slow. That's the Holy Spirit's counsel to you as you conduct yourself in this world. Listen to Proverbs 18 I'm going to read you five verses, but they're not one through five. Verse two, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Or I've heard it, the fool does not delight in knowledge, but only in revealing his own mind, mm -hmm. right? 
who does, come on, it's okay. Get the picture of the person in your head that that describes that's not you. And then realize that you're, you're, every time somebody does something that reminds you of a Bible verse, you are looking in a mirror. And we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. The more urgent your need to jam your words in edgewise, the lower are your chances of gaining or sharing wisdom. The more urgent your need to jam your words into a discussion, the lower your chances of gaining or sharing wisdom. 18.4. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. So, what the, 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 the wise man is saying is complicated, confusing, murky, and dark are the words of a person who is quick to speak. Wisdom is pithy, succinct, simple. The more you have to explain yourself, the less profound you are. Amen? It's not that everyone else is too dumb to understand me. It's that I'm an insufferable gas bag who delights in creating word salad. Every time I've been like, people just don't understand me. I, I cringe a little bit in my soul when I remember it. Because the reality is, no, no, no. You're not understandable. Wisdom is a babbling brook. It moves. It's light. It's easy to cross and comprehend. Verse six says, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. <laughs> Verse seven says, a fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. Verse 13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, children, I know. As you're still receiving the instruction, I know this has to come out. You are one who gives an answer before you hear, and it is to your folly and shame. Do we see it? Quick to hear, slow to speak. Quick to hear, slow to speak. So we move to the end of 19 and into 20. Let every person be slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let me begin by applying this where it is by far most cutting. Preachers, teachers, husbands, and parents, listen to Thomas Manton. The word must not be delivered with an angry heart. Preachers must be slow to anger in delivering the word. Do not let the word stem or flow from private anger. Spiritual weapons must not be used in your own cause. The word is not committed to you for advancing your own interests, but Christ's. Do not give yourselves over to your own passions and anger. People, this is important. People easily distinguish between this feigned thunder and divine threatenings. The preacher who advances his own agenda from behind the pulpit, upon which is laid open the word of God, nearly always does so in an agitated, threatening, angry manner. Moms and dads, 
Tread carefully in your use of Scripture during discipline. I'm not saying don't use it. I'm saying tread carefully. The Bible is never, never to be the handle by which you swing the sword of your own fury around. Most of us have sat under angry, self-serving preaching. We have detected the personal vendetta of the preacher in his barely hidden direct attacks. I've been guilty of this myself. And afterward, wondered if there's a more grievous sin that I've ever committed. Having somebody in mind when you make a point from the pulpit, there's got to be a section of judgment set aside just for that, for preachers. Because it's shameful. It is the exact same behavior as every Pharisee who binds heavy burdens on someone else's back that they would not lift with their own finger. It's no different. Now, before I continue with anger, we need to understand that not all anger is sinful, right? Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. So it must be that there is anger which is not sinful. I think I've learned how to tell the difference. I've shared this before, so hopefully you're already thinking it in your head. Um, And if you think I'm wrong or you have a better idea, please share it with me. Not right now, but afterwards. If you want to tell the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger, think about it like this. If you're mad, if you're angry, and there's like a part of you that's kind of having fun, it's probably not righteous anger. Selfish anger is not like the other sins of the heart. Other sins we saw last week, they're conceived slowly. They develop through the cycle. I think anger is the exception to the temptation cycle because anger is full grown at birth. Those who are quick to anger are like gunpowder or gasoline. They ignite at the the, the most minor spark of offense. The volatility of the one who is quick to anger is disguised behind how deeply they feel as though their enslavement of everyone else to their emotions is commendable rather than correctable. I just feel things more deeply. That's why I launch like a Saturn V every time I think I might have been slighted. Mm -hmm. Every harmless remark is contorted into a purposeful affront. Mm -hmm. There's no minor reaction for the one who is quick to anger. All offenses are equal and all are equally deserving of wrath. Their targets are left confused, wondering how such an inadvertent mistake on their part could have warranted such a disproportionate response. If you're not sure this is you, and you really want to know, am I I that angry person that James is describing? Me, not the Bible. James. Pastor James is describing? Am I that angry person? If you really want to know, imagine that people in your life were given the opportunity to criticize you. Better yet, ask the people in your life to criticize you with the promise that you will not retaliate, that you will listen. Let them criticize you and then see what rises up in your heart. Is it sorrow or is it indignation? The angry person 
is ready to be indignant at all times. Quick to anger. Nothing gives the devil more opportunity than sinful anger. Nothing. So the takeaway here is simple. Nothing dulls anger like slowing it down. Just slow it down. How many first drafts of a text or email message have you deleted? Because by the time you got to the end of it and reread it, you were like, Ooh. Even that was enough to slow you down. Just slow it down. Don't respond so quickly. Like, it's not a competition to see how fast you can be cutting and destructive. We are quick to listen, slow to speak, so we are slow to anger. Amen? Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. This seems pretty self-explanatory. You're either filling your mind and heart with, with filth and wickedness, or you're filling them with the word of God. That's how that reads to me. Put this away. Do this instead. Okay, so invert it. Don't do this. What's now happening? If I'm not reading the word, what am I doing? And you know he's right. You know he's right because the times when the devil has successfully lured you out of filling your mind and heart with the word of God are the times when you have been most susceptible to some besetting sin or another. And this isn't, this is not the Holy Spirit going, no, I got you. This is the Holy Spirit going, child, listen to me. I want what's best for you. Put aside the filth and the wickedness and be preoccupied with the word of God. Filthy spirit and the pure holy word do not mix. If you will not turn away from your sin, you will not receive the word. Psalm 119, 104 says it this way. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Through your word, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The word in God's hand is an instrument to save your soul. When you receive the word, it drives out filth. And wickedness. The word of God convicts of sin, comforts a broken heart, and connects us with our Creator. Convicts, comforts, connects. I have, I got the whole repertoire of Southern Baptist preaching techniques up my sleeve. I can exercise at any point. I just want to point it out, make sure you all appreciate five points, three points, the three C's. I can do it all. We live in a self-obsessed culture. The character of a Christian then is this. Ready? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, putting away filth and wickedness, receiving the word. Which of us 
does not need to confess sin today. Which of us doesn't need to admit we're slow to hear, quick to spout off, quick to be furious? Don't, I mean, don't we all have too much of filth and wickedness still? Aren't we too reluctant to receive the word? I am betting as magnificently entertaining as I have just been. Many of you tuned out for a while, tuned back in, tuned out for a while, tuned back in, because you're, you're slow to receive the word. It's not because I'm not entertaining. <laughs> you, you can't focus and you need to repent. It's reluctance to receive the word. We do. All of us, if we're honest, could sit here and consider for just a few seconds How am I doing with this Christian character piece? Like last week was bad enough, right? While I walked us through how we fall to temptation so often, that was bad enough. Before that, we liked the trials bit. We're like, yeah, I do have boo-boos and it's nice to know that God cares, right? (laughs) This is horrible because this is like zooming in with a microscope on exactly how twisted and evil we still are left to ourselves. Man, my mouth can run. Man, my temper is short. Man, I couldn't tell you half of what James just said in the last half hour. Right? So what do we do with that? We're going to take Lord's Supper. And I want to encourage you all to do this a little bit differently today. And this is not me. Like, I've observed some things and you all need to correct your behavior. That's not at all it. We have... In the last year, the way we've been doing Lord's Supper, I think is beautiful. I love it. But I think we're a little quick. We're jumping up a little quick. I have enough music queued up here for us to spend, I think, almost 12 minutes doing Lord's Supper this morning, which is not an eternity. Why don't we sit and be still for just a minute And think about what we need to confess, what we need forgiveness for, and what we are grateful to God for. And then we can go and we can take and eat, remembering that the bread represents the body of Christ, which was broken for your sins. And we can take and we can drink, remembering that the cup represents the blood of Christ, which was shed to wash away those sins. Then maybe we can emerge from this place this morning a little bit quicker to listen, a little bit slower to speak, and a little bit slower to anger. A little bit less filth and wickedness and a little bit more of the word of God, which is able to save our souls. Amen?